Well, thank you, Tim. It's good to be back here again this morning. I so enjoyed the break last Sunday and the message that Fred brought us, Why Are You Angry? And I thought a lot about that this week because it, in a way, gives a bit of a foundation for what I'm going to be talking about this morning. A couple weeks ago, I started a series of messages on marriage. I'm convinced that our relationships are highly indicative of the health of our relationship with God. We tend to separate that a lot. But I think, especially in our Anabaptist churches, we don't talk about marriage enough. We talk about people getting married. But having gone through counseling, premarital counseling with couples and having officiated some marriages, we don't really talk much at marriage about what it means to be married, how to live as married people. And so about three weeks ago, you might recall, I spoke on the permanence of marriage, as long as we both shall live. Um, That's recorded. If you weren't here and would like to listen to that, you're welcome to. Two weeks ago, I talked about building gospel-centered relationships. And a lot of these principles carry over into other relationships as well as marriage. Uh, Within the home, with your neighbors, with friends, with co-workers, with siblings, with parents. But they're highlighted. All of these principles get highlighted in marriage because there is no more concentrated, intimate relationship that human beings can have. In marriage. This morning is going to be a little bit different message. It's not going to be an expository message. I'm going to read some scripture, but I'm not going to go verse by verse. So many times I have come away from messages, and perhaps you have as well, and said, I understand the principle, but how do you do it? And we tend to not tell people how to do it. So what happens is when it comes to marriage, what we tend to do, we go into marriage and we tend to mimic the marriages that we're most familiar with. We know how our parents dealt with marriage and perhaps those close friends of ours. And so we say, well, as Simon sees, Simon does. So this must be the way that you deal with conflict. This is the way you deal with relationship. So this morning, much of this message is going to be just practical suggestions. Um. If each of you can take one thing away from the message this morning, just one thing that specifically speaks to you, and you can start putting that to work in your marriage if you're married this morning, and if you're single in your relationships with other people, you will see dramatic change. Now, if you didn't have a pen and paper this morning, most of your pews, I think Jim and Bonnie on the one in front of you, there is a piece of paper and there's a pen I provided. So no one has excuse this morning that you can't take some notes. Write something down. It comes from our message this morning. So open your Bible this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read verses 25 through 32. Paul here is not specifically talking about marriage, but applies to marriage as well. It applies to conflict at any point. And um, so a lot of what I talk about this morning, if you're here this morning and say, well, I'm not married, so I didn't, oh, yes, it does apply to you. And you can learn much from what the Scripture has to say 
about conflict. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 25, Paul writes this, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Fred talked about that last week, didn't he? Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Conflict is inevitable in relationships. In a marriage, you start with two selfish people from different families and backgrounds with different personalities Add a few bad habits and some uh, interesting idiosyncrasies. Throw in a whole bunch of expectations. And then turn up the heat with the daily challenges of married life. And you've got the recipe for conflict. And since every marriage has its tensions, and since conflict is unavoidable, the question this morning... And this is where I think we've erred sometimes. The question is not how to avoid conflict. It's how to resolve it. I find with married people that I relate to, and that I've had opportunity to counsel with some, too much effort has been put into avoiding conflict. You know, we just isolate. We just don't talk about it. Just don't go there. Each go our own way rather than resolving conflict. Conflict will lead spouses, conflict will lead two people in any relationship to one of two places. Either you'll resolve it and you'll get closer, or else it will lead you to isolation. And how many marriages today, even in Anabaptist circles, people are together, Living together, but they're living in isolation. And then, so sadly, when sometimes those marriages end in divorce, we say, what happened? You see, divorce rarely ever is the result of a blowout. Like a tire, it's a slow leak. And the source of that slow leak, most times, is unresolved conflict. Many times people don't know how to resolve conflict. And so this morning, I want us to talk openly about conflict and some ways to resolve it. Because unless you and your spouse choose to resolve conflict, resolve it, 
you will become victims of a process that's going to result in isolation. Oh, your home may still be intact, but you'll be living in isolation. Well, let me throw a few steps out that I think are so important. The first of those is this. Resolving conflict requires that we know and accept and adjust to our differences from our spouse. You see, one reason we have conflict in marriage is that opposites attract. Have you noticed that? Usually, the task-oriented person uh, marries someone who is people-oriented. Or the one who lives life at breakneck speed often marries someone who's more laid back. Uh, It's strange, but that's part of the reason you were attracted to that person. Because they added some variety to your life. They added some spice. Something was a little different. But isn't it interesting that you don't have to be married very long before the things that attracted you can become things that annoy. And then we find ourselves arguing over small irritations like toothpaste and toilet paper and being punctual and... uh, how we relate to in-laws and where we celebrate holidays and how we parent and we could go on and on. And we may define, discover that our differences are so great, we wonder how in the world did God bleed us together in the first place? And that leads to something that I said a couple weeks ago. We must always remember that God's plan for our marriage is not to make us happy. make us holy it's to make us holy God created marriage to make people holy to give two people the opportunity to learn to love and submit to and serve and forgive another sinner so that we might understand more fully the love and forgiveness of our heavenly father for us Now, it's crucial that we understand the differences between us and our spouse, accept those differences, and adjust to them. And just as Adam accepted Eve, the way God brought her to him, we are called to accept the person that we have chose to marry. Now, We need to remember that our spouse has the opportunity to minister to us spiritually in ways that we've not even begun to understand yet. Let's talk a little bit about those differences. To understand our spouse's differences uh, is not the same as to understand that there are differences. We all know there are differences, right men? Our wives are so different than we are. See, I'm speaking as a man. And you wives are probably saying, yeah, you think we're different. You all see how you all are different. You see, understanding differences is not the same as understanding that there are differences. But it's seeking to understand how and why he or she feels, needs, believes, excels, struggles, enjoys, or dislikes things. And the only way you can learn that is becoming a student of your spouse. 
being willing to ask questions, being willing to listen honestly, being willing to observe carefully, and refusing to come to non-judgmental conclusions. So, we have to understand our spouse's differences. Seek to understand them. Not just that she's different. Wow, Gert is different. But how is she different? And why is she different? Why does she think that way? Why does she see that? Why does she believe so strongly in that? That's what it means to understand differences. Well, the second thing is to accept those differences. Now, accepting differences is not the same thing as declining to try to change him or her. To accept our spouse's difference is to seek to objectively validate and encourage those things that are an acceptable reflection of our Creator. Not their faults. We're not accepting those and saying they're okay. But the ways that God has created them different, we seek to accept that. You see, to accept our spouse's difference is to love our spouse even when they are different from us. It's easy to love someone who, the same way you are, right? But to love someone that likes coffee when you don't, <laughs> that takes a little something more. Well, not only do we have to understand, not only have to, have to accept, but we also need to adjust to our spouse's differences. And that's not the same thing as manipulating circumstances and situations, nor using secrecy to avoid conflict. That's where a lot of spouses go wrong. You start avoiding one another. Well, I don't need conflict, so I'm just not going to tell her. I'm just not going to tell him. And what you start doing is you start isolating. You're walking apart from one another. And ultimately, you will pay a price for that. To adjust to our spouse's differences is to give a voice to them. A voice that carries behavior-changing weight in your marriage. That they have a voice, and that voice can change the way we do things. The decisions we make. The way we go. And as husbands... That's a challenge to bring ourselves to that. We are very quick to take on the headship mantle when it gives us the authority to make the decisions, right? But that's not what it means to love our wife as Christ loved the church. To adjust to our spouse's differences is to provide opportunity for non-threatening discussion of their perspective. And so that's so important, the differences. Well, another thing that's important in resolving conflict is we have to learn to defeat selfishness. You see, each of our differences that we have coming into marriage, each of your differences, those who are single, if you get married, those differences are magnified in marriage because it feeds the biggest source of our conflict. And the biggest source of conflict in any marriage is each spouse's selfishness. That's the biggest source of conflict. Maintaining harmony in marriage has always been difficult ever since Adam and Eve. Two people trying to experience oneness in marriage while at the same time trying to go their own selfish separate ways. That can only produce conflict, and it always does. You know, the prophet Isaiah 
described it very clearly 2,500 years ago. In Isaiah 53, 6, he said this, All, let me paraphrase, all spouses have gone their own way. Like sheep, they've gone astray. We, husbands and wives, have turned everyone to his own way. That's the source of selfishness. We are all, by nature, self-centered. We all instinctively look out for number one, and that reality leads directly to conflict. So, to those who are single this morning, selfishness is not a unique problem or challenge to marriage. It's just as prevalent in singles. But marriage provides you an opportunity to work on it. A single person is selfish. It's hard to help them become not selfish. But those of us that are married, you have a spouse that's committed to you that can help you work on your selfishness. What we have to remember, though, is defeating my spouse's selfishness is not my assignment. Defeating my selfishness is my assignment. Defeating my spouse's selfishness, that's God's assignment. So don't take God's assignment. Just take our assignment. And the prescription for defeating selfishness is found in Jesus' example and his teaching. Instead of wanting to be first, we've got to be willing to be last. Instead of wanting to be served, we must be willing to serve. Instead of trying to save my plans and my dreams and my goals, we have to be willing to lose them. We must love this intimate neighbor, our spouse, as much as we love ourselves. Your spouse is your neighbor. It's your closest neighbor. We must be willing to love that neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, obviously, we must never compromise biblical truth because it's only as we first surrender ourselves to Christ that we can have the strength to give up our will for our spouse. Well, another thing that's required to resolve conflict is we have to be willing to pursue our spouse. Romans 12, 18, and you're familiar with this passage, says, If it be possible, as much as lies within you, live at peace with all men. If it's possible, as much as lies within you, live at peace with your spouse. <laughs> you see, those words are very difficult words for most couples, many couples, because living peaceably means you've got to be willing to pursue peace, not walk away. Pursue peace. It means you're willing to take the initiative to resolve conflict rather than sitting back and say, I'm just going to wait till, till she comes around. If it takes six days, I know she's wrong. So I'll just wait six days. That's not pursuing peace. That's not pursuing peace. You see, in short, we have to seek the resolution of conflict. And that's going to cause us to be willing to set aside our hurt, set aside our anger, set aside our bitterness. It means not giving up, not losing heart. And so my challenge for all of us today, whether you're single today or whether you're married, keep your relationships current. Paul said, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Well, I think the principle there is try to observe a 24-hour 
rule if you can. You see, the longer we let an offense go, the more we give place to the devil. The longer it takes for you and your spouse to talk about this and seek reconciliation and forgiveness, the longer you wait, the more you're opening the door for Satan to bring bitterness and resentment and anger and evil speaking. It doesn't get easier to wait two or three weeks and then bring it up, does it? And we pay an awful price when that happens. Don't allow our adversary to gain a foothold. Well, obviously, another step is confrontation. Wordsworth, the poet, said this, Any man who has a good friend needs no mirror. And happy is the couple where both spouses feel the other is a friend who will listen and understand and be committed to work through any problem or conflict. You know, when things are right between Gerd and me, I think we could take on the world. Hey, nothing can take us down. But when things are strained between she and me, I'm out here thinking, how can I do this? See, that's the strength of marriage. That's the strength of marriage. But doing that well requires loving confrontation. And what does loving confrontation look like? Well, it's characterized by grace and tact. It requires preparation. How do, you, how do you prepare to confront your spouse? Let me just throw out a few things that I've learned, and I'm still learning, because some of these I still have to struggle with. One is, we've got to check our motivation. Now, why am I confronting her? Uh, do I want to help her, or do I want to hurt her? Am I seeking healing or further isolation? I've got to check my attitude. Do I care about her? Do I respect her? Do I want to understand how she feels? See, I know what she did. <laughs> but do I really want to understand why? Do I want to understand how she sees this? And that will affect my approach. And then there's all about circumstances. Timing is everything. <laughs> Location, setting, privacy. Those are, those are all things. And being ready to listen. And it's so easy when we finally get up the nerve to confront, we say, we're going to talk about this. We sit down, we're not ready to listen, we're ready to talk, right? It's so important to ask questions to verify our understanding. None of us, there's always two sides to a story. It's important in confronting to stick to one issue. <laughs> Don't come with a laundry list. Stick to one issue. Focus on the problem, not the person. Behavior, not the character. When we use words like, you always do this, you never do this, we paint that person as a bad person. But when we say, when you do this, this is how it makes me feel, then we're asking for more acceptable behavior. We're saying the behavior was what was the problem. Focus on facts, not motives. Focus on understanding rather than on winning. Well, another one we've talked about before, and that's resolving conflict requires forgiveness. Listen, no matter how deep the love is that a couple have for one another, they will fail to love and please each other at times. 
you know, you look at these starry-eyed brides and grooms, you've all been to weddings, and you think, man, they love each other so much. You might remember your day. There's no way he or she could ever hurt me. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. Because they are human. There are times they're going to fail you. That is going to happen. And the only true relief for that failure is forgiveness. Because when failure happens, hurt accompanies it. It's like getting a splinter. Splinters don't feel good. Splinters hurt. When our spouse fails us, it hurts. There's pain. And the only resolution to that is forgiveness. And if we don't resolve it, the result is bitterness. We may hide it. We may say, I'm going to forget it. But it, it, it's like a seed. And then it becomes a root that thrives. And what results is isolation in our relationship. We talked about forgiveness the other Sunday. Forgiveness is mandatory for a disciple of Christ. We have no option. If we're going to be a disciple of Christ, forgiveness is mandatory. Whether we're married or single. But marriage, perhaps more than any other relationship, provides so much opportunity for practice. Because you're alive. You're working toward oneness. And the closer you get together, the more you're going to experience sometimes failure and hurt. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is surrendering the desire for judgment, punishment, and retribution. It's surrendering resentment and the desire to punish. And forgiveness is never granted under duress. You can't bargain for forgiveness. You can't protest. But it has to be out of a spirit of love. The last verse I read said, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. See, we do not forgive because we love the person. Now, I know somebody said, well, I love him, so I'm going to forgive him. No, that can't be the motivation. Because some days you're not going to feel love for him. We forgive another person because God forgave us. That's why we forgive. Not because they said, I'm sorry. Not because they said, I won't do it again. Not because they said that was wrong of me. We forgive because we have been forgiven much. That has to be the motivation. If that is not the motivation for forgiveness, we're going to give up sometimes. We're not going to be motivated. And she's still doing the same thing. Forgiveness is never motivated by action or inaction of the offender. Well, we've also got to be willing to Return blessing for insult. We don't defeat conflict by destroying the adversary. <laughs> right? I got conflict in my marriage, so I'm just going to kill my wife. Now the more we ain't got conflict anymore. That's not the way you resolve conflict. Whether you do it physically, kill her, or with words. Returning blessing. And that can be by the words we use, by focused listening, by validating our feelings, by being willing to serve even when we're wronged. That is a way to resolve conflict. And that's the approach that has opportunity to resolve conflict. Now, 
If I do that right in my marriage, does that mean harmony instantly returns our mar- my marriage and everything is right? No. There's no guarantee of that. But that's God's project. Let God have his project. You and I need to focus on our project. Well, I want to speak a little bit this morning yet on God's goal for marriage and his plan for achieving that goal. I think I've already said that God's goal for marriage is not my happiness. It's my holiness. And his, his holiness is, is sanctification. It's to make something holy. And the pattern God uses for that is this. This is the pattern that God wants to use in my marriage and in your marriage to make me holy. This is the pattern right here. You see, this cross is all about conflict. This cross is about conflict between me and God. And there were irreconcilable differences. You ever heard that? You ever heard about couples that have irreconcilable differences? That's what this is all about. The difference between you and God was irreconcilable, short of the cross. That's the reason he sent the cross. And that's why we have to learn to respond to conflict in relationships in the same way. To understand why there's conflict in our marriage, what God's purpose for conflict is, and how we should respond to conflict, we have got to embrace God's primary goal of our marriage is to make us holy. You see, his primary means to make us holy is does not lie in silently suffering. I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to become a, a, a quiet one and let that person run all over me. That's not his plan. But the cross is his plan. Now, the fact, the fact that we have conflict in marriage does not mean we married the wrong person. You ever heard that? I must have married the wrong person. No, you didn't marry the wrong person. Quite the contrary. The wrong person was the right person because in providing a suitable marriage partner, God chose him or her to provide you opportunity to extend mercy and forgiveness the same way your heavenly father has extended mercy and forgiveness to you. You see how that changes your look, your outlook? We don't love and forgive our spouse because they deserve it. We love and forgive our spouse because God has forgiven us. That's why we do that. Well, where does conflict come from? Paul mentions a couple things. Let me share a couple verses from James, James 4, 1 through 3. Paul says, when, where do wars and fightings come from among you? Do they not come from the lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it, it upon your lust. I think there, there are two primary things we need to understand about wrath and malice and clamor and evil speaking. Those result when we allow our passions the things that are important to us, to become an idol. Let me ask you a question. 
What is it in your marriage that you want so badly that if your spouse does not provide that or inhibits you from having that, that you will yell at her? Speak evil of him. Isolate yourself from her. Abuse him. Ignore her. You see, when those things happen, that points to an issue, Paul says, that is, is deeper than your spouse. There's an issue with you. There is nothing that I should want in my marriage so badly that if my wife is standing in the way of it, that it would provoke me or allow me to allow bitterness and anger and wrath and evil speaking to characterize my behavior toward her. That's what that means. When that behavior is evident in our lives, it speaks beyond another person. It speaks to idols in our lives. That passion, that desire has become an idol. And anything or anybody that stands in the way of me experiencing that, I get angry at. I get frustrated. I get bitter. I have resentment. I imagine this morning if I asked you married saints to turn to your spouse right now and identify your source of conflict, you might say, you. <laughs> You're my source of conflict. But James says we've got to look deeper than that. Because it really is our passions, our lusts. When our desires become idolatrous. You see, it's... It is right to be unhappy with our spouse when their behavior is not what it should be. That is right. When their actions or inactions offend us, but to express rage, to become resentful, to slander them, to become bitter, points to reality much deeper than what they are doing or not doing. And that could be true of us not getting the respect, the honor, the support, the tenderness, the understanding, the sexual intimacy, whatever it is that we crave. To express rage, resentment, slander, or bitterness points that those things have become an idol to us. Listen, nothing is to be so important to you or me that it provides that type of behavior. When those things are there, they point clearly to the fact that something has become an idol. My spouse may be at fault, but rage and resentment and bitterness and anger point more clearly at a problem in me than in her or him. Well, then what do I do with these unmet expectations? What do I do when I have these needs, these desires? I'm not honored by my wife. I'm not respected by my husband. What do I do with those then? James says you pray. 
You have not because you ask not. We ask God for that. Remember, it is not my responsibility to change my wife. It's not her responsibility to change me. That's God's project. That God had that project. Well, another thing that sometimes causes us to become bitter in that is when we want to take on ourselves the right to judge. That's God's responsibility, to judge. And, you know, when you and I feel wrong, we can feel nigh on to deity to set it straight. She did that, and, I mean, that's clear as anything. What she did was wrong, and... I'm just going to tell like it is. And I just feel next thing to God to straighten that out. But think about this. Every sin that's committed against you by anybody else is going to be taken care of by God in one of two places. Either at the cross or in hell. Every sin. It's going to be taken care of in one or two places, either at the cross or in hell. So we can leave it with God. We are not the judge. And that doesn't mean that we're not, we don't evaluate something that's not what it should be, but we are not the one to pronounce judgment. Now, I hear people say all the time, forgive and forget. And, and I, on one level, I understand that. But on another level, that's impossible. God doesn't forgive and forget. God is omniscient. At no point does he forget anything in the sense that it's impossible for him to remember it. But God chooses to not remember our sins against us anymore. And we have to choose to forgive that way too. Forgiveness is a choice that you and I make not to remember a wrong against another fellow sinner. Because God will take care of it. Judgment belongs to him. Therefore, we can put away that wrath. You see, when we hold a desire for vengeance, we give an opportunity for Satan's power to come into us. Because we're trying to assume the role of God. How did Satan become Satan anyway? He wanted to assume the role of God. That's how Satan became Satan. Paul says in verse 31, or earlier, and he says, Be angry and sin not. Put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. When we've been hurt, when someone has left you, when someone broke promises, when someone broke your heart, when someone disappointed you, what are you left with? You're left with bitterness and malice. And we have to be willing to bury that at the cross. Bury it with Jesus, because vengeance is his. It's not okay what happened. It's not okay what they did, but that's God's department. It's not ours. Rather, we're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Listen, you and I need to remember two things. First of all, we are all sinners. Secondly, we get sinned against by other sinners. But in that order, first of all, we are all 
sinners. Secondly, people sin against us. But our Heavenly Father's forgiveness of us should be so overwhelming to us that we gladly and easily forgive others. You see, for some of us, if you're here this morning and you are struggling to forgive something in your past, someone did, may I say to you, the cross is too small in your life. That's why you struggle to forgive. If, if the cross was as big in your life as it should be, if you fully understood the forgiveness of God to you, it would not be hard to forgive that person. Forgive and forget. I, I, I read recently an illustration. It so spoke to me. These are two spent shotgun shells. You women may not connect to this, but we guys will. When you are holding a hurt and not forgiving someone, it's like you're carrying away two shells, live shells. I mean, they're in your pocket. I mean, they could be used. Now, you may, I'm not going to, but I, I, what they did, but when they're spent, I remember what happened, but I've forgiven. I carry no live rounds. I carry no live rounds. Do I forgive? Remember? Sure, I remember what happened. But I've forgiven. I'm not carrying live shells. But I've forgiven. Well, let me wrap up with just a couple more things. If you haven't written anything else down yet, maybe something of this will click. First of all, in resolving conflict, you and I always have to examine our heart. When you and I get hurt by someone, someone has done something against us or failed us in a way, Ask yourself, what, check the anger in your heart. Check if there's bitterness there. Yes, there's going to be hurt. There's going to be hurt. But what else is there? Is there bitterness? Is there resentment? Is there slander? Is there hatred? Examine our heart. Because those should not be there. That's where giving Satan a place Second thing I might suggest is overlook the trivial. Part of grace speaking is knowing when something's important to be addressed. Choose your battles. Everything is not confrontational. Things that potentially, though, do damage to your relationship must not be overlooked. And husbands, we are the worst at this. We just don't want to rock the boat. We, we just don't want to say anything because... It might get worse. If there's potential there for long-term damage our relationship, we must not overlook it. And there's a real art to know the difference in those. You have to pray for wisdom. You know, the theologian, you know, <laughs> well, I won't go there. Got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away. Okay, enough of that. Be practical and thoughtful in how you confront. Rash words are cheap. They're a dime a dozen. We say things that are powerful words we haven't given a lot of thought to. And it can be helpful with your spouse to set up some boundaries for conflict, you know. 
Don't address conflict when you're tired. When both of you are physically exhausted, that's not a time to address conflict. Don't address conflict when you're ready to go to bed at night. Adopt a 24-hour rule. You know, deal with your hurt before vengeance and anger builds up. It's so much harder if you've given time for that to happen. Um, be quick to listen, slow to speak. And this is a real challenge for me. You see, the vast majority of communication problem, you hear all the time couples have trouble with communication. It, it, the vast majority is not what's expressed. It's we don't listen. We don't listen. Be a servant listener. Seek first to understand the other person. Secondly, to be understood. See, I tend to get that backwards. I want Gert to understand why I am upset. And I can draw her a picture. I can make a Corolla moment if she needs it. I can show her exactly why I'm upset. That needs to be secondary. First is to seek to understand. And don't interrupt. Interrupting says, my thoughts are more important than your thoughts. And don't give premature advice. We men, we husbands... We can see it so logically sometimes. You know, we are that Aristotelian theology. You know, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That's like saying to your wife, uh, you know, you try to your wife, she's not going to say to you, oh, I thought I was upset. Thank you so much for helping me understand I'm not upset. I'm so glad you're my husband. It's not likely going to come from her mouth. You see, listening is a skill that's most necessary when it's the most difficult. Well, a couple others, my time's running out. I'll just highlight a couple of things that I thought about. Um, if you and I can believe with our spouse God's purpose in our marriage, it's not to make us happy. Now, it's a great source of happiness, but that's not God's purpose in our marriage. It's to make us holy. That gives us hope. And what so many couples need today is hope. When there are difficulties to believe, we're having a difficult time right now in our marriage, and every marriage sometimes has some difficult times. But in this difficult time we're having, God has a plan for this. This is not off his... He can use this. That gives us hope. It's like a researcher once was taking rats, and he would drop them in this big vat of water, and he'd watch how long it took them to drown. And in 10 minutes, they would drown. They'd swim for 10 minutes and just give up and drown. But he found if during that 10-minute time, he would take them out for two or three minutes and then put them back in, some rats swam for 60 hours before they drowned. Why? They had hope. They had hope. In your marriage, you and your spouse need hope. And the hope you have is to understand that even when you're not happy, when you, when you say, I'm, I, I, I think I married the wrong person. God's got a plan. He's going to use this to make you stronger. Hope is the factor that can sustain us. And there's all the things that we even teach little kids, but we sometimes do as adults. Speak graciously to one another. Don't use sarcasm. 
Don't call names. I mean, names make, when I call Gerda a name, it makes me feel good instantly. It's the quickest way to alienate a relationship. And don't talk condescending. Don't treat your wife like a daughter in the family. You know, we can't speak to people that way. And here's a big one you wisely listen to. Don't confront in public. Let me tell you something as a husband. There's nothing that will shut a man down quicker than to tear him down in front of other people. If you got something to say to your husband, you say it to him alone. You don't do it in front of other people. Well, the last thing I want to say is don't give up. Don't give up when there's conflict. Pursue, 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 pursue. Be always open for reconciliation. Always give grace a chance. Remember, when you think there's irreconcilable differences, we cannot get past this in our marriage. This was about irreconcilable difference. You and God could not negotiate through that. See, I'm convinced when we are struggling in our marriage with conflict, the cross is too small in our lives. We need the cross to be a bigger part of our lives. Well, the last one again is genuinely forgive. Genuinely forgive. Forgiveness is a choice. And in our forgiving and in our serving and our submitting, always remember we do those things out of reverence for Christ. We don't do it because our spouse deserves it, merits it. We do it because we love Christ. And, and see, our, sometimes your spouse doesn't deserve it. And if you are going to require that to motivate you, you're going to run out of motivation. But Jesus always deserves it. He's always worth it. So you submit to, and you serve, and you forgive out of reverence to Christ. Not primarily out of reverence for your spouse. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the gift of marriage. And yet it is the most demanding relationship that we can be involved in. Thank you, Father, that you so clearly modeled Christ's relationship with the church for us to know how to relate to one another. Help us, Father, to resist our adversary's temptation, to let things go, to give him a foothold, but may we be quick to forgive, may we be quick to seek to understand rather than to be understood, May we be quick to accept the differences of our spouse, the way that you have made them different from us. Father, may our marriages clearly declare to the world the love that you have toward mankind. For it's in Christ's name we pray.